Hello, and welcome to the Careers by Design podcast. I'm Sharon Belden-Castingue, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today, I'm speaking with Beverly Daniel Tatum, class of 1975, President Emerita of Spelman College. Beverly, to start out, can you catch me up a bit on what you're up to now? Sure. Well, I retired from Spelman in July 2015, and my main project now, several months later, is working on a new update of my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria?, and other conversations about race. That book was published in 1997 by Basic Books, and they intend to reissue the book um, on its 20th anniversary in 2017. So my task for calendar year 2016 is to do the research I need to do to bring it into the 21st century. Well, that's fantastic news, and I'm going to circle back to that later. But what I'd be curious to know first is let's go back a bit in time. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Were there early signs that you were going to become a scholar? There were, actually. <laughs> I think I grew up in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Um, my father was a professor at Bridgewater State College, now Bridgewater State University, and my parents moved to Massachusetts when I was four. I was an early reader. I learned my mother, who later in life became a reading teacher, uh, was a homemaker when I was, you know, a preschooler, and yet um, spent a lot of time reading with me. And so by the time I entered school, I was already a pretty prolific reader and started school early, skipped kindergarten, went right into the first grade, and then subsequently skipped second grade. So I had, um, so by the time I was out, I graduated at 16. And uh, throughout that time was very much a bookworm. You know, I loved to read, and I spent a lot of time at the public library and, in fact, wrote books uh, when I was a kid. Now, I will say those books were completely plagiarized. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I was like a fourth grader writing little books about topics that were of interest to me, you know, copying down things from other people's books, you know, didn't yet know about citations. But the fact of the matter, you know, this idea of reading and writing was something that I was very interested in early on. Was there an early interest in psychology? Well, there was in this sense. So as I mentioned, I spent a lot of time in the library. And when I was old enough to have a job. I worked in the public library in Bridgewater, and one of my jobs um, as a library assistant was putting the plastic covers on books, you know, when the new books were delivered. Sure. You put those protective covers on the books. And so I read a flap, you know, I read the flap jackets of a lot of books. And uh, one of the books that I had the opportunity to see and then subsequently read was a book about a woman who was a therapist. And the book was entitled Dibs in Search of Self, and it was about a, uh, by Virginia Axline, and it was about her experience working with a child in therapy, and I was really fascinated by that and decided at the age of 16 that I wanted to be a psychologist. Interesting. So why did you decide to attend a liberal arts college? Well, I have to say, I don't know that I really considered, um, anything other than liberal arts colleges. I wanted something that was small. I wasn't interested in large public universities. Uh, I did, you know, apply to quite a few places, but Wesleyan was my first choice. But all of the schools I was looking at were liberal arts colleges. So I don't really know that I considered anything besides that. The um, idea of going to college was something that I grew up with. Both of my parents were college graduates and in fact you know my dad had his his doctorate was a college professor and my mom um, after she had her four children went back to school and earned two master's degrees and was a lifelong educator so the idea of going to college was very much part of my family story and you know it was really just about choosing which one but I don't know that I really thought about liberal arts versus something else I was looking for, you know, small, residential, traditional college experience, which I think in many people's minds today translates into a liberal arts experience. And how would your experience at Wesleyan, how did Wesleyan change you? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think 
Wesleyan, um, so, you know, I entered Wesleyan in the fall of 71. It was a, at that time, you know, in the early stages of co-education. I was in the second class of women. Uh, I had a lot of social opportunities that I didn't have growing up in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Uh, being a young African-American woman growing up in a predominantly white community, one of the things that I really benefited from in my Wesleyan experience was the opportunity to really be part of a much larger African-American student community than I had previously had that experience. Mm -hmm. So that was for me a, 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 a big plus. I didn't live in the Malcolm X house, but I spent a lot of time there and certainly was very involved in um, the African-American student organization on campus, and that was something that was very important to me uh, in terms of my own sense of identity uh, during those years. The faculty members that I encountered, you know, were certainly very encouraging, very uh, appreciative of my abilities. I had great mentoring from a woman who no longer teaches at Wesley and long retired, her name is uh, Faye Bullware, who taught a course through African American studies on the on what she calls uh, child development, black child development, I think was the title of the course, but looking at specifically um, psychology as it applies to the experiences of African American youth. And that was a really wonderful course experience for me, and I learned some things in that class that I went on to explore as a graduate student at the University of Michigan. More broadly, though, I think the opportunity to uh, have self-directed learning, I really appreciated the flexibility of the Wesleyan approach to curriculum and uh, you know, the independent thinking that is fostered at Wesleyan. It was a great experience all around. I was very enthusiastic about my Wesleyan experience. When did you know you were going to pursue graduate work in psychology? Uh, almost instantly. Okay. <laughs> uh, in the sense that, I mean, I decided, you know, at 16 that I was going to be a psychologist, and I knew that required graduate study. So I, um, you know, became a psychology major. I took lots of other courses, but I was primarily focused on my major as a psychology um, student, and did the you know undergraduate thesis and um, was very intentional about applying to graduate schools in my senior year and so uh, you know probably I probably came into Wesleyan with the expectation that I would go on to graduate school. Now as a psychologist myself I know how broad that field is it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people how did you go about yeah determining exactly what track you wanted to pursue, the research you wanted to pursue, and the graduate program you ultimately decided on? What led you to Michigan? Well, that's a great question. Um, child clinical was my interest, and it really was rooted in having read that book, right, about um, a child, uh, a psychologist, actually I think it was a psychiatrist, but someone who was doing therapy with children. Mm -hmm. That was of interest to me, so I knew that I wanted to be in a clinical program that had a child concentration, and unfortunately, at that time, I didn't really get that much help from my faculty members in the psychology department in terms of identifying programs because the orientation of the department was not very clinically focused. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's very experimental, and the, you know, the, maybe there was one faculty member who was a clinician. So I didn't, you know, my advisor and I talked about where I might apply. Um, I knew Michigan was a strong program. So, of course, I applied to Michigan. I also applied to Ohio State. I applied to a few other places, um, University of Massachusetts, because I was from Massachusetts. You know, but I, I, I got a book, you know, uh, a listing of APA graduate programs and looked for places that had a child clinical emphasis and then you know, picked out five or six, maybe seven, to apply to. And um, much to my surprise, I have to say, because I was a strong student, and when I applied to college, I got into every college I applied to, I was expecting a similar result <laughs> hmm. from my graduate uh, applications, but I only got into two places. But the two places were Ohio State and Michigan, which were probably among the strongest of the places that I had applied. So that was a good result, but... Um, you know, Ohio State offered uh, a four-year 
uh, you know, fellowship, and Michigan offered a one-year fellowship, but everyone told me, you know, don't worry about that. They will, of course, renew it. And um, in the end, I think I chose Michigan because of I thought it had a stronger reputation, and I knew some Wesleyan uh, graduates who were in Ann Arbor. How did you find Ann Arbor? I liked Ann Arbor a lot. Um, you know, I didn't like Michigan weather so much. <laughs> you know, I, grew up, I grew up in the Northeast. You know, um, the difference between winter in Massachusetts and winter in Michigan is the sunshine in Massachusetts. Right, uh, right. Michigan is pretty gray. But um, but uh, I enjoyed Ann Arbor. It's a great college town. And, in fact, I'm going there this weekend because I'm, re- I'm going to receive an honorary degree from the University of Michigan. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful. I did my master's there. I'd love an excuse to go back. Um, yeah. So tell me a bit about your graduate school experience. How did you go about refining your research interests with the outcome of a dissertation, or was it purely a clinical program? How did your interests evolve, I guess is what I'm asking while you were there. Sure. Well, I um, I had an interesting experience at the University of Michigan. Um, I Certainly, I liked Ann Arbor, and I think I got a good education at Michigan, of course, and, uh, you know, and that credential has been great. You know, Michigan's got a wonderful reputation in psychology. And yet, um, the clinical program was not exactly what I wanted when I got there. Um, if I had, you know, doing it over again, I might not have gone to Michigan from this point of view. At that time, Michigan was had a very strong psychoanalytic theoretical focus, the clinical program did. And I was not that interested in the psychoanalytic approach. Um, I was much more interested in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, as it turned out, and um, and very interested at the time in family therapy. And it was a very individually focused program. However, having said that, um, I connected with a faculty member in the department who started out with a very strong psychoanalytic um, bent. You know, that was his theoretical focus at the beginning of his career, but over time had gotten quite interested in family therapy. And he became my thesis advisor, and I often say to graduate students, you know, you only really need one person who you can connect with. You know, I mean, I did the coursework and all of that, but at the end of the day, you know, it's your dissertation advisor who is the most important person. And Eric Berman was my dissertation advisor, and he was very interested in families. And he taught a course on the psychology of marriage and the family, which um, I became the teaching assistant for. And that was a great experience. I was very interested in the theories about um, family functioning and uh, family therapy. And I was particularly interested in the experiences of African-American families, um, particularly those that had moved into or were raising children in predominantly white environments, which, of course, was my experience. My parents moved to Bridgewater, Massachusetts in 1958. It's a small New England town, very few black families living there at the time and still. And so um, that had been my experience growing up. And in the African-American studies courses that I'd taken at Wesleyan and the reading I'd done, I never read about black families living in white communities. So I was so clearly it was an under-researched topic area, and it, that's what I decided I would do my research on. Uh, Eric, even though that was not his particular focus, he under, you know he studied families, but not specifically black families and white communities, was very supportive of my um, choice, my research choice, and and I think my uh, independent thinking and you know sort of that independent streak that had been fostered and uh, supported at Wesleyan served me well in that regard because, you know, I just did what I wanted to do. Is this the work that ultimately became Assimilation Blues? Yes, that was based on my dissertation. Right, okay. So can you tell me a bit about when you were finishing graduate school, how did you make that decision of that first move out? Well, I actually um, left Ann Arbor before I finished graduate school. So um, I came to Ann Arbor in the fall of 75, and I left Ann Arbor in 
the summer of 79 because I got married. Um, and my husband was someone I met at Michigan. He was a graduate student, and he had an opportunity. Um, he was in political science at the time and had an opportunity to be a dissertation fellow at UC Santa Barbara in the fall of 79. And so we decided that I would move with him to California, which I did, and uh, we got married in Ann Arbor, and then two weeks later moved to Santa Barbara. And so uh, when I left Santa Barbara, um, my dissertation advisor and the committee members were all, you know, I don't want to say they discouraged me from getting married and moving, but they were concerned that people who leave, you know, the university before completing their degree sometimes don't finish. Mm -hmm. And so they were really, you know, wanting to emphasize the importance of not allowing this move to derail my uh, graduate completion. And I, um, of course, was concerned about that, but was certain that I could indeed finish. So I had um, one of my dissertation committee members. Uh, there were three men and one woman. And the woman on my committee, a woman named Mary Whiteside, said to me, you know, my one piece of advice to you is finish your degree before you have children because if you don't, I can guarantee it, you'll, your child will be two years old before you complete your dissertation. Right. So with that, <laughs> with that piece of advice, I, you know, we moved out to um, Santa Barbara, and my intention originally was I'm going to spend this year, by that time I had completed all my graduate courses, I was what you call ABD, all but dissertation, and I was going to do my dissertation in California, but I found when I first got there that it was hard to just, you know, sit in an apartment not knowing anyone and, you know, focus on doing your academic work. I realized I needed to have something else to do. So I got a job working as a clinician uh, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in the Campus Counseling Center. So I worked part-time doing that. And um, eventually I started teaching on a part-time basis and still began um, – the this data collection, I, it was actually a great place to be for my topic, which was, you know, the experiences of black families in a predominantly white community, because it is a place where there are a relatively small number of black families, less than 2% mm -hmm. of the population at the time uh, was made up of African Americans. So I started finding families to interview and began doing the work. But despite the warning that Mary gave me, I decided two years into our marriage that it was time to have a baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, I, I had a, I had a personal schedule that I was, you know, I wanted to have two children and I wanted to have them before I was 30. So I had this plan and, uh, we were successful in, um, getting pregnant. But unfortunately, uh, my, the first time I was pregnant, I had a miscarriage. I'm sorry. And so that, um, so, well, it was quite sad at the time I was, and I was a little depressed, which so slowed me down. I didn't really feel like working on, I didn't feel like interviewing families um, after, uh, you know, as I was grieving the loss of my pregnancy. But uh, a year later, we tried again, and I was successful in uh, delivering our first child, who grew up to go to Wesleyan. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so our oldest son was born in 1982, and by that time, I had collected my data and was analyzing it and trying to, you know, finish this dissertation, and uh, Mary was exactly right. You know, I defended it a month after his second birthday. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, so anyway, I did eventually finish the degree, uh, but, you know, longer than it would have taken otherwise, I'm quite sure. I started in 75. I finished my degree in 1984, so nine years later. But as I like to say, I wasn't sitting home twiddling my thumbs. I was working and then having a family and all of that. Right. And how long were you in California? We were in California from 1979, the fall of 79, through the spring of 83. Um, we left in the, in the summer of 83. We moved back to Massachusetts, and I started my first tenure-track teaching job at Westfield State in the fall of 83. And so when I started that job at Westfield, I was still not quite finished with my dissertation. Um, I was hired with the expectation that within the first year I would be finished, and I did finish it in uh, June of 84. Okay. 
And how long were you at Westfield State? I was there for six years. Um, I was there tenured and promoted to associate professor and then left to go to Mount Holyoke in the uh, fall of 89. And how did Mount Holyoke steal you away? Well, that's a great question. I um, stole myself away in this sense. I was at Westfield and, you know, enjoying the work. Um, I had a position that combined clinical work and teaching. So I worked 10 hours a week in the campus counseling center, seeing students uh, in counseling, but also uh, teaching, um, you know, two or three courses, three courses a semester. It was actually a pretty heavy teaching load, given that I was also doing 10 hours a week of counseling. And um, my book, uh, Assimilation Blues, came out in, the, in 1987. And my colleagues started to say to me, colleagues at Westfield, but also colleagues around the country were saying, you know, now that your book is out, you could leave. You know, you could move into another position, maybe a, one with a lower teaching load. And I wasn't really seeking to leave, but the seed had been planted that I was marketable mm-hmm. because my book was out and it was well-received. And uh, I got a letter right around that time. I got a letter, I guess, in the fall of uh, 1988, recruiting faculty mem- a faculty member to Mount Holyoke. So the, what the letter wasn't specifically to me. It was one of those dear colleague letters. Mm-hmm. Dear colleague, we're looking for someone who teaches courses in these areas and with these research interests. And you know, we're trying to encourage a diverse pool of applicants. And if you know anybody who'd be interested, please pass along some information. And so when I got the letter, I read the description of what they were looking for, and it sounded a lot like me. <laughs> so I said, hmm, this sounds like a job that might be interesting, and Mount Holyoke is in the same geographic region as Westfield State. I wouldn't have to move. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to relocate my family if I were to move and so uh, change positions. So I, But they were looking for an assistant professor, and I, as I mentioned, was already tenured at Westfield and an associate professor. So I called the number on the form letter and inquired as to whether there was any possibility of considering someone at the associate level. And the person I talked to said, you know, maybe, you know, why don't you send us your information and we'll get back to you. So I sent my resume and a little while later someone called me to say, they were interested in having an exploratory conversation. And two members of the search committee met me for lunch and we chatted about the position. And on the basis of that sort of informal interview, I was invited to have a formal interview. And I did that and in the end was offered the job at the associate professor level, though without tenure. And I decided to take that opportunity. So I left Westfield and went to um, Mount Holyoke without tenure, but as an associate professor, and then was tenured again three years later. What did you feel like you were losing and gaining by making that move from Westfield to Mount Holyoke? I mean, there, there obviously the tenure issue, which was eventually resolved, but um, in terms of your classroom experience, your teaching load, your research, things along those lines. Well, that the main thing was the teaching load. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was the major motivation. I enjoyed my colleagues and I enjoyed working at Westfield State, but um, I was concerned about the teaching load and the way in which the difficulty that you know the the standard teaching load take out the clinical experience, but the standard teaching load was four courses a semester at Westfield, and it was very difficult for people to maintain active research careers and also teach that many courses. And some of my colleagues who'd been there a long time would often say that they felt like they were not as marketable later in their career. You know, when we were when we were searching for new candidates, I would sit with in these meetings, in these search committee meetings, and hear some of my colleagues say things like, you know, I'm glad I'm not on the market now. I wouldn't be able to get a job because they had focused on their teaching and they had not been able to keep up with their research. And I never wanted to be in that position. I never wanted to be someone who would say, you know, 20 years in, I couldn't go anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. I, that just was not my vision for myself. So 
so when the opportunity presented itself to go to Mount Holyoke where the teaching load was two courses a semester, I was very happy about the idea that I would be able to do more writing. And indeed, when I got to Mount Holyoke and was just teaching two courses a semester, I felt like I was on vacation. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what was funny because my, you know, my Mount Holyoke colleagues would talk about, you know, how busy they were and how much work they had to do, and I thought this is a piece of cake compared to what I had been doing. At right. Right. Now so, you eventually. I'm sorry. Go so, ahead. No, I was just going to say. So you know, um, so I made that change. And the other thing, the main thing, I didn't really care. I don't want to say I didn't care about giving up tenure, but you know, tenure is only good if you want to stay someplace forever. If that's not your goal, then it doesn't make that much difference. And so since I had already decided that it probably was not in my best interest to stay at Westfield for my whole career, um, I didn't mind giving up tenure, but I did object to the fact that I was one year away at Westfield. I was one year away from being eligible for a sabbatical. Mm. So when I came to Mount Holyoke, I was able to negotiate with the provost um, an early sabbatical. So I, the deal that we made was that I would teach two years at Mount Holyoke and then I would have a sabbatical. So I didn't have to wait another six years for that. So, um, and then after my sabbatical, I would be reviewed for tenure. Okay. So it all, it all worked out very well in that, um, I did the first two years of teaching and I, as I said, you know, it was a much reduced teaching load from what I was used to. So that was good and I enjoyed the work. And, you know, the students at Mount Holyoke were great, and I, you know, enjoyed my colleagues. And then I applied for a Ford Foundation fellowship, a postdoctoral fellowship, that allowed me to translate what would have been just a one-semester sabbatical into a whole year. So my third year at, at Mount Holyoke, I was able to be on leave, and I spent my leave as a visiting scholar at Wellesley in the Stone Center there. And that was... Um, a great experience as well. It was somewhat shaped that the choice to be at Wellesley was somewhat shaped by the fact that the Ford Fellowship required you to be at somewhere other than your home institution. And I, by that time, I had two children, um, my second child having been born in 1986. And so uh, the youngest child was, you know, in the, when I finally had my sabbatical was 1991, fall of 91, academic year 91, 92. So by that time, uh, David, our youngest child, was starting kindergarten, and Travis Johnson, our oldest son, was uh, probably entering the third grade. And so I didn't want to be away from home. Uh, I didn't want to relocate them, and my husband uh, had a job. He was teaching also at Westfield State Mm. and, uh, you know, didn't want to relocate anybody for this year of sabbatical, but also didn't want to be completely away from my family. So uh, Wellesley was driving distance, and so I would spend three days a week in Wellesley and, you know, drive home and be home for a long weekend. It worked out okay. Right, okay. So, uh, but, but, but while I was on sabbatical um, at, uh, you know, having the sabbatical, my uh, first major article, my book was already out, but I had an article that came out in the Harvard Educational Review in the spring of 92, and it turned out to be a very popular, well-received article, so Mm -hmm. it was perfect timing because then I came up for tenure in the fall of 92-93, and, you know, by that time I had a book and this very well-received lead article in the Harvard Ed Review, so it was great. Now, you ultimately became a successful administrator at Mount Holyoke as well. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to pursue that route and how where that ultimately led you? Sure. Well, that is a great question because I was, um, you know, so I was doing well as a professor at Mount Holyoke. I, as you heard, I was tenured in the you know, academic year 92-93. In 1996, I was promoted to full professor and uh, became chair of my department in the fall of 97. And I actually did not want to be the chair of my department, but it was, you know, as is the case in many places, 
a kind of a rotating responsibility. Sure. And having become a full professor, I was sort of protected from the responsibility until I was promoted. But once I was promoted to full professor, then, you know, my colleague said, okay, it's your turn. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so I became chair of the department, but also in the fall of 97, my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, was published by Basic Books. It came out in September 97. And so my chairship and my book came out both at the same time. And I, uh, you know, didn't particularly, as I said, I didn't really want to be the chair, but recognized it was my responsibility. But um, I also was being invited to give a lot of talks and traveling a lot related to the publication of my book. And I started to wonder whether it was really the best use of my time to be teaching intro psych to undergraduates at Mount Holyoke. You know, I think I was starting to feel a little restless about that and started to think that maybe I'd like to be at a research university where I could work with graduate students and, uh, you know, maybe have a... I actually had a pretty active research agenda working with, um, you know, very talented undergraduates who worked on research projects with me. But the idea of working with graduate students and maybe, I think I was just getting a little restless in my, by that time, uh, 1997, I'd been at Mount Holyoke eight years and I was just getting a little, I don't want to say bored, but a little restless. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for a new challenge and I was being invited to a variety of large universities where people would talk to me about the possibility of coming to teach there. So I was thinking about that. But again, I wasn't interested in relocating my family. So I was kind of trying to figure out, well, you know, is it worth trying to move everybody and take up a new position at a, you know, different kind of position in a research one university? Or, you know, what should I do? I talked to a colleague of mine about this restlessness I was having, and she made the suggestion that I think about being the dean at Mount Holyoke. And my first response to that suggestion was, who in her right mind would want that job? <laughs> I thought, you know, I mean, administrators, what do they do? They sit in meetings all day. What could be more meeting, more boring than that? That was my first thought about it. And she said, um, you are not using your imagination. If you were the dean, you could take the ideas that you've been writing about in your book, and referring to why all the black kids, you could write, you know, things you've been writing about, you could put into practice. And that would really make a difference at this institution, and it could influence what people do at other institutions. And I thought that was a very interesting idea. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. Um, at that time, I was also in my mid-40s. I was probably uh, in 97. I was 43. And um, my colleague... Another colleague of mine suggested that, you know, in a few years I would be turning 50, and by that time my youngest child would be graduating from high school, and I would have a kind of freedom that I didn't feel in terms of geographic mobility mm -hmm. that I wasn't feeling just then, and that it might be an interesting thing to explore college administration, because if I didn't like it, I could always go back to the classroom. But if I did like it, you know, seven years from then, I'd be able to go and do anything I wanted to. Or would I would have greater movement um, if that was something that I enjoyed. So for those reasons, I thought it was certainly an idea worth experimenting with. What, you know, I, I felt like it was a low-risk kind of thing to um, consider because, if, as she said, if you don't like it, you can always go back to what you're doing now. So I um, decided that when the dean of the college position at Mount Holyoke became available, I would apply for it, and I did, and I was selected. <laughs> so I became dean of the college, and I learned pretty quickly that it was really an interesting job. And all those meetings that I thought would be boring are um, much more interesting when you get to set the agenda. So I was, uh, I found that I liked it quite a lot, and, and the suggestion that my friend made that, you know, I could influence things at the college in ways that would be in line with the ideas I had was certainly true. So I um, found that we were able to 
do some innovative things as dean, and I built a team of people working around me that was, you know, really solid, and it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. And because I was having success in that role, I started being nominated for more advanced positions like presidencies. And I wasn't sure I wanted to be a college president, but um, a friend of mine, another friend, actually, this is a Wesleyan connection because when I was dean of the college at Mount Holyoke, Edgar Beckham, who was dean of the college at Wesleyan when I was a student, was on the board of Mount Holyoke. He had since Mm. retired from being dean of the college, but he had known me since I was a student at Wesleyan. And one of the things he said to me uh, during his time as a Mount Holyoke trustee was that if I thought I wanted to be a college president, and he was encouraging me to think about that because he thought I was doing such a good job as dean, he said, you know, if you want to be a president, you should go through the interview process, even if it's not necessarily a job you want, just to see what it would be like. Mm-hmm. So, because the interview process for presidents is different than any other kind of position in higher ed. Sure. And you'll learn a lot just from going through the process. But I thought that was good advice. And so one of the times I got a letter saying I'd been nominated for a position as president of a college, I thought, well, this is a college that is the kind of college I like. It's a small liberal arts college. It is um, the kind of school that if I were going to be a college president, I would be interested in. So I decided to go through the interview. I decided to apply and go through the interview process for all the reasons that Edgar suggested so that I'd learn about it. And in that process, I uh, did well in the interview and became a finalist. And so then um, the, the search consultant said, okay, so, you know, you're on the short list. They want to invite you to campus for the on-campus interviews. Um, up to that point, the interview process had been completely confidential. Nobody knew who the candidates were. But once you go for your on-campus interview, of course, then it becomes public. So you have to decide before you go whether this is a job you really want. Because if it's not, the worst thing that is would happen would be for them to say, oh, she's our first choice, and then for you to say, sorry, I'm not really interested. So, you know, you have to get clear about that. That was what the search consultant said to me. And so I um, thought a lot about it because by that time, my youngest son was a freshman in high school. Um, My older son was a freshman at Wesleyan, so he was, you know, on his way. I didn't have to worry so much about him. He was in college. He was set. But the younger one was not interested in moving, and I wasn't sure I wanted to move him either. And, uh, you know, my husband was at a point in his career. My husband's older than I am, and so he was closer to being retirement age. But still, the timing wasn't great for him either, and I wasn't really sure. So I I talked to three women, all of whom had been college presidents, and asked them for advice. And one of them, the first one said, if I were you, I would wait until your youngest son is out of high school because it's a very demanding job and, you know, there'll be other opportunities. So let him finish up high school and then focus on it, um, becoming a president if that's what you want to do. The second woman I asked said something similar. She basically said, you know, you're going to have lots of opportunities um, given your career trajectory, but this might not be the best one for you. I think you should wait, but perhaps what you should do is ask your the president you work for, the Mongolia president, um, if she can give you some new responsibilities so you can continue to build your experience as an administrator while you wait. And then the um, third person I talked to was the Mount Holyoke president herself, uh, Joanne Crichton, who actually had been at Wesleyan at one time. Um, Anyway, I talked to Joanne, and she encouraged me not to take the position. She wanted me to stay at Mount Holyoke as dean, of course, but she had you know, a vested interest in that. But she also said, uh, when I asked her, I said, well, you know, if I were to stay here, is there something else I could do, some new responsibilities I could take on so that I can continue to grow professionally? And she said to me, what you don't know is that next year I'm going on sabbatical. And if you stay, when I go on sabbatical, you can serve as acting president. Huh. So that was 
a great opportunity. Um, it was a wonderful opportunity for a lot of reasons because one, I wasn't absolutely sure I wanted to be a president. Right. And so it was an opportunity to test it out without actually having to relocate or move anybody. And, um, and I really enjoyed my life at Mount Holyoke. It's a wonderful institution, and I liked the, um, my colleagues, and I was enjoying being the dean. So the idea of continuing in that role and then being the acting president for six months while she was on sabbatical was like the perfect solution to my desire to explore being a president without actually having to commit to it. So that's what I did. I withdrew from that other search and stayed at Mount Holyoke, and Joanne went on sabbatical as promised, and I became the acting president. And that was in the spring of, uh, of, the spring of 2002. And uh, while she was gone, I enjoyed being a president, and uh, it was, you know, it was very interesting. I enjoyed the work and the variety. One of the things throughout my career that you might hear in this narrative is I don't like to be bored, and so whenever I start to feel a little bored, I look for a new challenge, and what was very wonderful about being president was every day there was a new challenge, mm -hmm. so, um, so I really enjoyed it, and while I was president, I was nominated for the presidency of Spelman College, which was, you know, the perfect match for me. I didn't know at first it would be. I, you know, when I first learned that I'd been nominated, I felt like I, it was an idea that I would need to think about. But the more I learned about it, the more clear it became to me that it was the perfect job. And so Joanne came back, and I went to Spelman. So when you started at Spelman, what did you expect your life to be like in that role, and how did it meet or not meet those expectations? Well, it's an interesting question because um, let me start by saying that when I was first contacted about the Spelman presidency, I, as I mentioned, I wasn't sure that I wanted that job, um, but I was encouraged to at least have a conversation with the woman who was leading the search. Um, it was a, the woman who was a trustee, a Spelman trustee. Uh, her name was Yvonne Jackson. Yvonne was a Spelman graduate, very successful in the corporate world, and she was leading the search committee for the Board of Trustees. And the person who contacted me, the search consultant who contacted me, said, well, you know, just as a courtesy, would you have a conversation with Yvonne? She's going to be in your area. And so I agreed to do that, and when I met her, I was very impressed with her. She was, you know, very dynamic. We had a great conversation, really quick, personally. And after that conversation, I decided I needed to know more about Spelman. I wanted to learn more about it. I had, even though, of course, I knew that Spelman was, you know, a historically black college for women, and I knew it was a very well-regarded institution, I'd never been to the campus. And so I decided to visit the campus um, before I made the decision to be a candidate. So one day I just flew down to Atlanta and a friend picked me up at the airport and we drove to the Spelman College campus. I didn't tell anybody I was coming. I was just an anonymous visitor walking around the campus and I was very impressed by lots of things. But one of the things that impressed me was it was, you know, this particular day, it was the end of January and it was 75 degrees in Atlanta. <laughs> so it was a warm and sunny day in Atlanta, and uh, the campus was buzzing with activity, and I just, you know, felt a special connection to the campus almost immediately. And then I went to the admissions office and asked for a campus brochure. And on the back of the brochure, there was a lovely picture of the campus chapel lit up at night, and there was a paragraph that described the impact of a Spelman education on its graduates and the power of the experience and what it meant for young women to step onto the Oval and pass through the Alumni Arch and become part of a network of Spelman women around the world doing great things. It was, you know, just wonderful uh, description of the Spelman experience. And then there was a line in, the, um, in that description that said, this is your heritage and your calling. Mm. And I really felt like that 
sentence was speaking to me because part of what I was searching for was, um, you know, what was the best use of my particular skills and talents, and I felt like this is just it. You know, there was that moment of recognition that this is it. And so I um, made the decision to apply, and of course, you know, we know I got the job, but I was, even as I was applying, I had some hesitation about it. And the hesitation was not that I didn't think it would be a wonderful experience or that I could do a good job at Spelman, but I also knew that because of Spelman's position in the world of higher education, it's a truly one-of-a-kind institution. There's a great deal of visibility mm-hmm. that the leader of the institution has, and I am a relatively private person and don't necessarily, um, I'm not uh, naturally drawn to the center stage. I'm a person who much prefers to operate behind the scenes. And so I knew that if I were to take up that role, I would have to be out in public in a way that would stretch me more than I would necessarily find comfortable. And I was right about that. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I obviously went forward. I took the job, um, but it, there was a lot of there. Um, I think more so than let's say being the president of Mount Holyoke, there was a lot of public presence, not only in Atlanta but really around the country, mm-hmm. um, where you really are sort of representing the African American community. African American women in lots of different ways. You know, if Essence Magazine is going to do something on education, they want to talk to the president about it. If you know, um, you know, any anything of significance where there's an interest in what Black women think or how Black women perceive an issue, someone wants to talk to the president about it. Right. So there is a very it's a highly visible role, and uh, I knew that intellectually. But, you know, actually living it was uh, a very, you know, it was, it was demanding in a positive way. You know, I appreciated the visibility and the opportunity, but it did requ- it required me to stretch myself in ways that I hadn't had to stretch previously. What do you hope was your legacy? What do you feel was your uh, legacy I'm- to Spellman? I like to say, I mean, you know, Spelman is a wonderful institution and was wonderful before I got there, right? So, um, you know, Spelman this year celebrated its 135th anniversary and in that time has had now 10 presidents. President number 10 was just inaugurated uh, in just the spring 2016. So in that 135-year period, you know, I was president number nine. And I was always conscious of the fact that I was building on the good work of the people that came before me. That said, I became president in 2002, and I really felt like, and I served from 2002 to 2015, and I feel like one of the things that I did was to bring Spelman into the 21st century. And by that, I mean really thinking about If you think about what the 21st century has meant in the world, you know, we're much more globally interconnected. Uh, Of course, technology has become increasingly important. And, um, but that idea that Spelman should be more globally connected was important. We moved from a place where maybe 50 to 75 students a year would study abroad or travel globally to, at the end of my tenure, uh, 450 students a year were having that experience. The idea that we should really be seen not just as the best historically black college or university in the nation, which meant many people regarded Spelman as you know the finest HBCU, mm-hmm. but really an institution that could be seen in a on a broader stage as one of the best liberal arts colleges in the nation. And I think that that is where we are positioned today. Right. So I feel good about that. And, you know, I could talk about lots of, you know, over a period of 13 years, there are lots of things you can do. But, um, but I think that idea of really helping Spelman become a strong 21st century institution 
is what I would point to. And I promised we would come back to this, and we are. So according to this psychology journal database, PsychInfo, your book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, has been cited nearly 2,000 times since it came out in 97. Uh, I'm delighted that you're updating it, but I'm curious to know a little sneak peek. How has your own thinking about that work evolved over the last couple decades? Well, you know, it's very interesting. I mean, what I find uh, what I find to be true, uh, perhaps sadly so, is that not much is different mm. uh, 20 years later. Um, in 2017, when the book comes out, one of the things that I want to be able to reflect on is, you know, the last two decades, those last two decades, you know, what's happened, a lot has happened that I think has shaped the conversation the nation has about race, you know, not the least of which is the election of Barack Obama, not just once but twice. Um, you know, 9-11 uh, occurred in 2001 after the publication of, um, the 1997 publication of Why Are All the Black Kids? You know, today, you know, the conversation revolving around Black Lives Matter and all the activism that we have seen in the last year or two on college campuses and universities, you know, so many of that, so much of what has happened in the last 20 years, I think, needs to be reflected on in the updated version of the book. But at the end of the day, um, the fundamental points that I made in the first book, I think, are still valid. And what's really striking to me is how many people are encountering the book for the first time. You know, this generation of students, I run into people all the time who say, I just read your book in a course and how helpful it was and how, you know, much it helped explain their experience, even though, you know, the book was written before they were born. Mm. That's fantastic. Beverly Daniel Tatum, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Careers by Design, the interviews. Production by Sharon Belden Castingway. Music by Andrew Santanello. Interested in designing your own career? Check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Wesleyan University website.